Okay, so there was this gal. She was sitting across the table from another lady in a diner. And she said to the other lady, my New Year's resolution is to stop putting my foot in my mouth all the time. And I bet yours is losing weight, right? <laughs> See, some people never really change. Why is that? See, I believe that the key to positive change is to have first a change in your perspective. See, until you begin to see things differently, you probably won't live differently. See, our view of life shapes how we live life. So it's important that we have the correct view of life. What is the correct view of life? Well, the Bible tells us really three key metaphors of how we're supposed to see life. And we want to walk through those because it's so important that we're seeing things rightly if we're going to live rightly. The first metaphor we get from the Bible on how to see life is that life on earth is a test. Life on earth is a test. I mean, throughout the Bible, God is constantly testing people. He's testing their character. He's testing their faith. He's testing their obedience. He's testing their love. He's testing their integrity. He's testing their loyalty. In fact, words like trials, temptation, testings, refining, these words are used over 200 times in the Bible. And our character is both developed by tests, but it's also, it also is revealed by test. And according to the Bible, all of life is a test. God is constantly watching your response and my response to people, all kinds of people, to problems to successes we experience, to the conflicts that we find ourselves in, to illness, and to disappointment. Uh, Rick Warren has rightly points out in his book titled The Purpose Driven Life, he says this, you'll be tested by major changes, delayed promises, impossible problems, unanswered prayers, undeserved criticism, and even senseless tragedies. And what is shortly after he wrote this book then, he and his wife experienced one of those tragedies as their son committed suicide. God tests our faith. He's testing our faith through problems. He tests our hope. I think he tests our hope primarily how we handle our possessions. And he tests our love through people. He intersects us with all kinds of different people, and it's a test, the test of our love. So when you begin to realize that life is a test, and we start to see the way a second, the situation I'm in right now is a test. It'll significantly impact how you are going to see and handle that situation if you start to realize this is a test. So God is watching everything that we do. We are being tested constantly, all of us. And all those even seemingly unimportant moments 
are important to God, how we respond. And then God is committed to rewarding us for how we do on those tests. In fact, as we pass those tests, we are piling up rewards. And God is going to reward us, and it's going, those rewards are going to be forever. In fact, here's an important passage. James chapter 1, verse 12, says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, under testing. The same word is translated oftentimes, testing. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, under testing. For once he has been approved, he'll receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, some of you are in the middle of a huge test right now. No show of hands, but you know who you are. Pass the test. Pass your test. Some of you are in the middle of a test, and you've got to stop and think, what matters most in the middle of this test is that I stay true to God that I continue to obey. And make sure that you don't use as an excuse the fact that the other person isn't passing their test to give you an excuse not to pass yours. And some of you are thinking, well, I'm not being tested right now, and I just want you to know, don't feel left out. <laughs> One's coming soon. So life is a test. It's important that we see that. important that we don't forget that. And God is watching. He's watching how we respond to each little and big test. And it's going to matter. It matters to him. And it's going to matter to us forever as he rewards us for those that respond to those tests. Now I want to mention two tests that most Christians fail on a regular basis. And those two tests are Tithing and keeping the Sabbath pattern. And they're both tests. Let's look at the tithing one, why it's a test. Well, Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Familiar passage to many of you, but let's just look at it again. Malachi 3.10 says, Bring the whole tithe in the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. That was so the priest could work. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. So here God says, God says of himself, put me to the test. He says that of himself. Put me to the test by doing what? By tithing, by giving 10% of your income to the work of the Lord, to the house of the Lord. He says, test me and watch me come through for you as you trust me to make 90% go further than 100 would. So it is a trust test. We're going to have to trust him to keep this promise that he made. So it's a trust test. Am I going to trust him to keep his promise? And it's a trust test that I believe that if I give 10%, he will make 90% go further than 100. So tithing is a trust test for us. We're trusting God to keep his promise. At 90%, he can make 90% go further than 100% if we will just trust him. But most Christians fail this test. They just won't do it. 
They won't do it. They don't, the reason they won't do it is they really don't trust God to come through. But I want you to know this is a test. The second test is keeping the Sabbath. It is also a trust test. Let me talk a little bit about the Sabbath. First of all, why does God want us to keep this Sabbatic pattern of resting one day in seven? First of all, God wants us to keep the Sabbath because he knows we need regular rest. Psalm 103 verse 14 says, For he himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. So God knows our limitations. God knows what we need. God knows we need rest, all of us. And he's designed us to need rest in a certain pattern. A day of rest every seven days. And I think I just need to say this for all of us. I, I wish someone had said this face-to-face with me early in my days of ministry. Fatigue is not God's plan for your life. Say it again. Fatigue is not God's plan for your life. When God created heaven and earth, he rested on the seventh day and blessed and sanctified that pattern. The Sabbatic pattern is a blessed pattern. God designed all of creation to function on that pattern, all of creation. But there's a second reason why God wants us to keep the Sabbath. There's something God wants to teach us. Remember how God fed the Israelites when they wandered the wilderness for those 40 years? He fed them with manna from heaven. It was on the earth every morning before the sun came up, this flake-like substance. They could, they could pick up every day and be enough for them and their family. But they're only to do that for six days. On the seventh day where they weren't to go out and collect any. So he's trying to teach them. So what is he trying to teach them? He's trying to teach them that six days of gathering will, be, will provide enough for seven days of living. Six days of gathering will provide enough for seven days of living. And if you try to gather on the seventh day, it will not benefit you. That's what he's trying to teach them. And the seventh day is to be a day of rest. And so working on the seventh day does not profit you. That's what he's trying to teach them. Working on the seventh day. Saying, well, I can, I can just do more if I work seven days as opposed to taking off a day. Logically, that makes sense to us. But we're missing the supernatural aspect of this. If I'm going to work six days and obey God and trust him to make six days enough for seven days of living. It's a test. If I'm going to do that, God gets involved. There's a supernatural aspect, and he makes sure it does. So God's trying to teach his people to trust him. Trust him to provide for them even when they're not working. So just like the tithe, if we give 10%, God promises he'll make 90% go further than 100%. That's a test. The same is true for the Sabbath. If we keep the Sabbath, you know, that pattern of one day at rest and seven, it, that one day may be different depending on your schedule, but keep that pattern. And he's going to promise to make six days of work be more than enough for seven days of living. But it's a trust test. We have to trust him. Let me say something else about the Sabbath. 
more than you keeping the Sabbath, the Sabbath will keep you. I can't help but wonder how many of us in this room and online are not doing well physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally because we're not following God's pattern. And we are just worn out and fatigued and our whole sympathetic nervous system is shot because we're not giving it a reset. God designed us to need to reset. One day of rest in seven. And some of us, and I don't want to show hands, but we have to admit that we're so used to living fatigued that we don't even remember what it's like to wake up rested, excited about the day. God's ways are better than that. God wants us to rest. God promises to get involved as we trust him. But it's a test. So let's take a moment and respond to this truth. I just want you to close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to think about this. What is the test you're going through right now? Just close your eyes and think. What is the test that you're going through right now? So how are you doing on that test? How does God want you to respond to that test? What is God trying to teach you through that test? And Father, we pray that you would give us the grace, the strength, by the power of your spirit to pass that test. In Jesus' name, amen. So life on earth is a test. Secondly, another metaphor in the Bible, that life on earth is a trust. It is a stewardship. Our time on earth, our time, our intelligence, our gifts, our relationships, our resources, everything that we have, everything that we are, has been entrusted to us as a stewardship. We are to manage this, and we have to answer uh, you know, to God for the, how we manage those things. So we are all managers of all that God has given us. Now, this concept of stewardship, management, begins with this recognition that, first of all, everything is God's. Let's read this. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So everything belongs to God. We never really own anything. God is the owner of everything. We simply are managers. We're managers of our stuff. We're managers of our gifts. We're managers of our time. Well, that's all we are. We're managers. I want you to just think about this for a moment. I don't know if you've ever had a bad experience with a bank. Uh, I have. But you're supposed to be able to trust a bank. You're supposed to be able to trust a bank to guard your money and to give you some return on it. Could you imagine if you went to the bank and you actually talked to the president of the bank yourself, face-to-face, and you entrusted all of the money that you have to this bank and to this man, this president, and then you left and expecting him, first of all, the bank, to keep it safe and to invest it. You expect there to be some return on your life savings. So let's say a month later you go back, talk to the president of the bank again and want to know how your money's doing. And you find out that he spent it all, <clears throat> sorry, he spent it all on himself. That he decided to go on a cruise, 
He bought a new car. He went traveling. And he spent it all and had a great time. How would you feel at that moment? Well, you'd be outraged. You spent all my money? I didn't give it to you to spend on yourself. I gave it to you to invest. I expected a return. Well, here's the truth of the matter, spiritually speaking, is that everything that God has given us is his, and he expects a return on it. He didn't give it all to us so we could just spend it on ourselves. He gave it to us so we could somehow bring him profit, bring him glory. Jesus told a lot of illustrations about how this works in the Bible. The parable of the talents, we're familiar with it, most of us. A businessman entrusts his wealth and care to servants while he's away. When he returns, he evaluates how each servant did with what he trusted them with, and he rewards them accordingly. Let's just look at the summary of this. Matthew 25, verse 21. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. So at the end of your life, in my life, we're going to stand before the Lord and we're going to be evaluated on what we did with what he gave us. And then there's three, in this one verse, there's three rewards. The first reward is a commendation. He says, great job, well done, good and faithful servant. I think, again, I, I think this is one of the most awesome moments we're ever going to experience, because we're going to look into his face, face that shines like the sun, the Bible tells, eyes that are a flame of fire, hair white as wool. We're going to look into infinite love, infinite love, and hear him say our name and say, well done, say your name. What a moment. And then, after the commendation is a promotion. You were faithful with these little things I gave you, a few things. Now you're promoted and you're over many things. And then, after the accommodation promotion, there is a celebration. Come and share the joy of your master. There's a great celebration. Tomorrow night is the National Championship College football game. And coaches are going to give their most powerful, motivating speeches they've ever given in the locker room to their football teams. And it reminded me of a speech that I heard uh, part of the recording of that was given by Coach Lou Holtz before the Orange Bowl some years ago. And here's what he said to his team over and over. He said, 60 minutes to play and a lifetime to remember. Walked around the locker room, 60 minutes to play and a lifetime to remember. Well, I want you to think about our lives. We got 60 years, maybe up to 100 years to live our lives and then forever to remember and to, you know, enjoy the benefits of. Now, one of the things that I want you to notice, we want to help you do well, the judgment seat of Christ. We really do. We want to help you manage well what God has given you. That's why you'll see this in your bolts and financial peace classes that you can take. 
and the church is paying for you to take it so you, for free. You can take it for free. The church wants you to have this benefit. I mean, it used to be 100 bucks to take this class, and we're letting everybody take it free because it's going to bless you. It'll be one of the most important things that you have done, definitely one of the most important things that you'll do this year. If you haven't yet taken that class, Financial Peace, take the class. We're offering two different times. You'll be so glad you did. It's a sense in which you actually, taking this class, you'll give yourself a pay raise. I guarantee you. Take the class. But you'll become a better manager, and you'll do better at the judgment seat of Christ. I urge you to take it. So let's, let's close our eyes again for another time. Just respond. Close your eyes. And I want you to think again about all that God has entrusted you with. Think about what God has given you to manage. Think about the money. Think about your gifts and abilities, your time, your relationships. Now, how are you managing these things? So, Father, we pray in Jesus' name, again, for grace, grace to be good managers. That we would see life, Lord, really as a stewardship, as a trust, that we would manage well. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, there's a third metaphor. We saw that life is a test. Pass the test. You'd be rewarded for it. Life is a trust. It's a stewardship. Manage well. It's going to matter forever. Thirdly, life is a temporary assignment. A temporary assignment. There are 11 metaphors in the Bible about how brief life is, the brevity of life. It's described as a mist that comes and disappears, as a breath. You see your breath in the morning and then you can't see it anymore in the cold. A wisp of smoke, a, a shadow that passes by. It goes on and on about how brief life is. And we see in the Bible that we're constantly reminded that this place, this earth, is not our home. It's not our final destination. We're just passing through. We're visiting earth. In fact, we're called aliens and pilgrims and foreigners and strangers and visitors and travelers in our brief stay on earth. And God says that we are supposed to live life differently because we're supposed to see life differently. Let's look at a passage that helps us with that. Philippians chapter 3, the end of verse 19 and verse 20. It's talking about unbelievers here. Unbelievers who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying, don't be like non-believers who set their minds on earthly things. Why? Because this isn't our home. Our home is heaven. We are citizens of heaven. I mean, I just think, let that soak in for a moment, that you are a citizen of heaven. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you are a citizen of heaven. You already have an address. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, think about that for a moment. The one who created the universe with just a word out of his mouth went to prepare a place for you, and he knows everything you like. He knows just what you like and how you like it. You know, sometimes we think about, oh, wouldn't that be an awesome house or a chalet or a beach house or a mountain cabin if it had this and I'd want it to have this? I want it. Jesus knows everything you like. And he went to prepare a place for you. And you have an address in heaven. 
I mean, just let that soak in for a second. Just think about the glory. This city, heavenly city, we're actually told the dimensions of it, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles, 1,500 miles deep, 1,500 miles high, this celestial city, when there's a new heaven and new earth comes and sets down on a new earth, size of two-thirds of the United States, just sets down, and you have a place there, an address. You're a citizen right now. Right now, you're a citizen of that place. We're just passing through here. We're just, we're just here on temporary assignment, but we, we have a home in heaven. Now, I want you to think a little bit about if, if you were appointed as an ambassador of the United States. Let's say you're called up by the president and he needed you to be an ambassador of a certain country. As an ambassador, you would represent the United States because that's still your home. But you go to that country, let's say it's even an enemy country. There is a, a sense of tension with this country. And you go there and you're representing America, but you're there living in that country. So you have to, you have to mingle with those people. You have to communicate with them. You have to learn culture. You have to learn language, perhaps. But what happened if while you're in that country that's an enemy to the United States, what, ha what happened if while there you really fell in love with that country and you became very comfortable in that country? And in fact, you love that country more than you did the United States. What would happen? What kind of ambassador would you be? You would be compromised. You would begin not to really represent the country, your home country anymore because you fell in love with that country. See, that's what so many Christians do. Here we have a home. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we're here on assignment. But what if we fall in love with this place? It'd be easy for us to become compromised and no longer be Christ ambassadors, which it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. We are Christ ambassadors. And yet so many have totally betrayed their king and betrayed his kingdom, and they have foolishly concluded that they live on earth, it's their home, and it's not. It's not our home. God warns us, don't be too attached to this place. This is temporary. And again, compared with other centuries, I mean, life has never uh, been, you know, easier. Really, in so many ways, we're constantly entertained. We're constantly amused and catered to. We have fascinating attractions. We have mesmerizing media we have all these enjoyable experiences surrounding us. It's easy to begin to think that the pursuit of happiness is what it's all about. And the Bible never teaches that the pursuit of happiness is what our life on earth is all about. Our life on earth is all about a mission. We're here temporarily on assignment, and we've got to watch out we don't become too attached to earth. And so God allows a certain, feel, a certain amount of feelings of discontentment and dissatisfaction to over take us. And we find ourselves discontented and dissatisfied with what it has to offer. And that is on purpose because this is not our home. Where we're going forever is going to be full satisfaction and contentment. Earth is not a home. We're here on temporary assignment. You know, the greatest heroes of the faith are not those who've achieved prosperity and success and power in this life. The greatest heroes on earth are those who are living for the next life. In fact, let's just read these verses. Hebrews 11, verse 13 and verse 16. Hebrews 11, 13 says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, 
But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. These were heroes. Verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So our life here on earth is not the complete story. We have to wait till heaven for the next chapters that go on forever and ever. So life is a temporary assignment. One of the things I want you to have in your hand, and I want you to carry around for a week, is this green card. This green card, a lot of people who come from other countries to this country get a green card so they can realize that they can, now can work here. But again, it's not, they're not citizens here but when they have a green card. Well, I want you to just realize that, carry this, that you are, it says that your home country is heaven and you are a temporary resident of planet Earth. Just for a week, carry that and just keep reminding yourself, I'm on a temporary assignment. This is not my home. In fact, I like the message paraphrase of 1 Peter 2.11. It reads this way. Friends, this world is not your home. So don't make yourselves cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. That's what many Christians do. They fall in love with this world and they are and they betray Christ. So life is a test. Pass the test. Whatever test you're in right now, pass that test. Life is a trust, a stewardship. Manage well everything you have, everything you are, so you'll be rewarded well, the kingdom to come. And life is a temporary assignment. This is not your home. You are a citizen of heaven. Now I want to close by telling you a story. This is a story that's really told by a pastor in Haiti. This pastor in Haiti, he tells a story of a man who's very... Uh, He's poor, but he has enough to have this house that's worth $2,000, and he wants to sell his house. And somebody else wants to buy his house, but he doesn't have $2,000. He's another poor man. He only has $1,000. So he talks to the owner and says, I'd like to buy your house, but I only have $1,000. And so the owner says, okay, I'll make you a deal. I'll sell you my house for $1,000 on one condition. You can have the whole house except for one part I keep. I keep this one nail on the door. I keep that one nail, and you get the rest of the house, and I'll give it to you for $1,000. And the man said, deal. So he moved in, his family, into the house. He had the house for $1,000. It's going great. And then this original owner decides he wants to buy the house back. So he comes and offers him $2,000 to the house. And he says, I don't want to sell the house under any condition. He says, I want to buy the house. He says, I'm not selling this house. And so what this man does, this original owner, he goes out and finds some roadkill. And he hangs it on the nail that he still owns. And it begins to reek, smell. And after a while, the family can no longer even stand to stay in the house. And they sell the house back to the original owner. Then the Haitian pastor, he finishes his story and says, 
He says, if you leave Satan even one peg in your life, one nail, he'll come back and hang his garbage on it. So as we close, I want to ask Hosea, come on up here. I want you to think about what is the one peg, that one place the devil still has access to you that he can come and stink up your life? What is that one nail? So, Father, I just pray you would just show us, Lord, what is that one place? Is there a place that we have allowed the enemy to have access to that he can really come in and stink up our life? Show us, Lord, what that is, because we want to give it up today. We don't want him to be able to come, have any access, any place. Let's stand together. As we close, I've got... There's a bucket here on this side, and there's a bucket over here up front. And during this song, I just I think it'd be good as we start the new year to think about, does the devil have any, any peg in my life, any access, anything he can get, he has a hold of from time to time that he can stink things up? And during this closing song, just come on up, that nail you got, and just drop it in one of these buckets and say, Lord, I'm giving that up today. I'm letting that go today. So feel free to just begin to come as we sing, and let's let the devil have no place in us in 2024. When everything, all I am and all I have to bring, I will give to you my All I am and all I have to give, I will give to you everything. All I am and all I have to give, I will give to you. All I am and all I have to give, I will give to you, and I will follow my heart, surrender, my Jesus, I am
Jesus, we, we fully surrender. Lord, we want the enemy to have no place that he can have a hold on us. And we pray for 2024. We pray this will be the year that you get the most glory you've ever gotten out of any of our lives individually and out of this church corporately. We're asking for the grace, Lord, to bring you more glory, Jesus, and the privilege and honor that is. So we're so glad that we belong to you. We look forward to all you're going to do in us and through us in 2024. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.